Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Part 1. Background. Chapter 1. The Girded Cavin. Will Flight Lieutenant Barnum report to the RTO immediately? Flight Lieutenant Barnum, report to the RTO immediately. They're calling my name over the station Tannoy, and my train, which has just pulled in four hours late, hasn't even coasted to the end of the platform. I'm running, trotting, half-staggering as fast as I can go, towards the distant exit gate at Glasgow Central Station. My bulky parachute bag is banging and lurching against my knees. Inside, all my precious equipment, which may soon be in use. My parachute, my emergency dinghy, in case I bail out into the sea. My yellow May West life-saving jacket, my flying helmet, goggles and steel helmet. Make the bag heavy. I'm just approaching the engine, but I still have a long way to go. This great swollen cylinder of steel is oily and hot. It's relaxing with a gush of steam, while the driver, in dirty blue overalls, stands with indolent satisfaction on the footplate. To my mind, the engine hasn't even exerted itself. It not only stopped three times along the length of Preston Station when I was saying goodbye to my wife, but it has stopped repeatedly since then. The three hours margin which I allowed myself to get from Glasgow to Abbott's Inch Aerodrome has been used up and overrun. The end of the platform at last. Where's the RTO's office? Over the far side, chum. Why was the train late? There was no air raid. Goods trains had priority, I suppose, but my mission's vital too. Yes, there's the office. RTO in bold letters. You're tannoying for me? You're Barnum. You are expected hours ago. Come on then, quick as you can, down these stairs. I'm bundled into the back of a dark blue Austin 10 with all my kit. Glasgow streets, tall black buildings, tram lines and impatient halts at red traffic lights. Suburbs with buildings thinning out a bit. What's my squadron commander going to say to me? Orders came through so suddenly that there was no time for official embarkation leave. On his own initiative, the CO gave us all 48 hours, a precious gift for Diana and I have only been married a few weeks. He particularly asked us not to let him down, and that's just what I've done. So this must be the aerodrome, low-lying grass, wide and flat, supporting two ancient black hangars under a heavy grey sky. No aeroplanes of any kind, just a few huts. The CO, broad and tall, with the blue and white diagonal stripes of the DFC that he won in the Battle of Britain, looking brilliant and clean under his RAF wings, particularly brilliant against the blue-grey of his large but well-filled uniform. How ashamed he makes me feel. It's no good making excuses to him. Everything he says is quite true, and I nod my head in silence. So the brand new flight commander should have let the squadron down. He need not rub it in. All the pilots are now streaming past us, taking their seats in the bus. They are very discreet. I think they guess that I'm in trouble. 
I'm so bewildered by the crazy rush from the station that they all stream past in a blur of RAF blue. Now, beyond the CO, I notice the Rhodesian shoulder flashes on the dreaded Hughes uniform as he hurries along with Ken, his wide English friend. Ken is the oldest man in the squadron. I notice the large American eagle flashes on the handsome Tilly's jacket and I notice his Clark Gable moustache. Pancho from the Argentine must have passed us already and Pip from B-Flight and probably slender Cyril with his unusual South African Air Force wings. But there's Babyface, the other South African pilot. His smart khaki uniform is very conspicuous. Last of all come Max and Scotty, one tall figure, one very short, in their dark blue of the Royal Australian Air Force, together as usual. I smile to myself as I watch these two buddies walking closely side by side, for they share a kind of conspiracy, a mutual reaction to everything. We have taken our places. The other pilots are laughing together. I have a window seat. The CO is just in front of me. I'm still in disgrace. In silence, I look out at the landscape that slides past. I watch it hungrily, for it may be my last chance. Cobbled streets, more tram lines, drab yellow and soot red walls, corrugated iron roofs stained and rusty, slate roofs chipped and damp, neglected fields, and a few trees whose springtime has been delayed by breathing smoke. All too soon, great cranes and masts finger the skyline as we turn off the main road. Before us is a gigantic ship, an aircraft carrier. It towers up above us like the side of a flat grey mountain, its complex of turrets and radar masts receding towards the clouds. The bus squeaks to a standstill. Climbing out and staggering with our luggage, we pick our way over the rusty railway lines, past three grimy trucks, and over cinders from which a few blackened weeds struggle gallantly to life. Just a brief impression of the ship's carefully painted sides as we file up the gangway. We are sailing almost at once, so, finding a hole through which I can look back at the derelict landscape, I watch the ropes that bind us to the shore being cast off one by one. As the last rope, the last link with home, splashes into the sea, trails in the water, and finally hangs limp and vertical from the overhanging catwalk, seven labourers, with their hands rumpling their trouser pockets, stare down into the increasing space between us and the dock. Deep in the ship, the engines are now throbbing and shuddering. The shores of the Clyde slide by more and more rapidly. Next comes the open sea, darkly overcast. As we plough our way into it, not only does a screen of destroyers take up protective stations around us, but a battleship moves into position. It's good to see such an imposing array, because last month, March 1942, had the worst shipping losses of the war. Over 80 merchant ships, totalling almost 500,000 tonnes, were sunk by enemy submarines. As it grows darker, I watch the battleship Renown, on our starboard bow, dip slowly into the black waves. She rises majestically up again. The reflected light from the churned water races along her camouflaged sides and a plume of white streams out behind her. It was with a mounting sense of adventure that I followed two of my American hosts through a labyrinth of corridors into the ship. I know the corridors fairly well now, having been several days on board, but in that first impression I quickly lost my sense of direction. Twisting and turning, we passed through the openings of watertight doors and ascended clanging ladders. We were in artificial light all the time, predominantly orange but sometimes blue. These lights played over the uniforms of the two American officers, changing the immaculate naval air arm green into unusual hues. At first the two officers looked like twins, for they both had long legs, tightly pinched waists, broad square shoulders and their hair was so short that it bristled from their skulls. But as they walked in front of me, I soon became aware of their differences. The first one went solidly on, always presenting a rounded back view, well, the second was all angles, all arms and legs, contorting himself against the corridor wall, continually turning to speak with me. 
He talked and asked questions all the time. He talked in the wardroom, where I learned that ships of the American Navy are dry ships, serving soft drinks, mostly Coca-Cola, where we each had an excellent cup of coffee served by a Negro barman, and where I first heard the characteristic tannoy message, the smoking lamp is out throughout the ship, gasoline system in operation, that I've heard repeatedly since. After coffee, the Americans led me down the corridors, past the hum of dynamos, through the hangar deck filled with aircraft and smelling of dope, into other creaking passages where cigar smoke lingered outside half-open doors. They told me that our carrier is the USS Wasp, or as they rolled their tongues so delightfully around it, the Wasp, the first ship of the US Navy to be sent into action in the European theatre of operations. What's the Messerschmitt 109 like to fight against? they asked me. It's very fast, I replied. It's generally been higher than us when we've encountered it. In combat, of course, the Spitfire can turn much better. That's the best advantage to have. And this new pursuit ship of theirs, the FW-190, how does she compare? So I told them, and how many sorties have you done? They asked. I was listening to their soft, round accent. The questionable innuendo in their voices took me by surprise. I thought the inquiry blunt. A few convoy patrols, I replied, and about 64 trips over France. And how many Germans have you destroyed? The question was embarrassing because I've only shot down one enemy plane. I've always felt ashamed that I've not done better. Indeed, I still dream of the combats in which I've bungled wonderful opportunities, manoeuvred the wrong way due to some false alarm or other, or simply missed through bad shooting. We had by then stopped outside my cabin door. I wondered if I should tell them the whole story of my FW-190 or not. I'd been chased in a state of terror all the way across the channel by three of these formidable machines. They were so very much faster than my Spitfire that I couldn't get away from them. Close to the cliffs at Folkestone, I made one last desperate turn. The Spitfire was very much more manoeuvrable than they were, and as I turned inside them, I took careful aim at the leader before giving him all that I'd got with cannon and machine guns. To my astonishment, the second plane fell into the sea with a great splash. I've destroyed one, uh, FW-190, I replied, hoping that I would be able to go in and unpack, but they lingered. Why is it, they asked me, that with all these sorties you don't wear any medals? That was almost too much. I had to explain that thousands of RAF pilots had very much more experience than I had, and that very few of them had been given decorations. I added that if there really were going to be campaign medals for this war, then the British would only make up their minds about it years afterwards. I looked at the many coloured ribbons that the Americans sported on their green jackets, learning that one was for prowess at shooting and another for being on the western seaboard of America when certain parts of it were shelled by a Japanese submarine. I wanted to say the CO's DFC really is a medal, but I didn't dare. After all, the Americans, who have only been at war a few months, will soon have their equivalent. Well, they said, here's your cabin. Your kit's been put in there. We live three doors up. We've got a library. And if you like music, we've got lots of recads. Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, make yourself at home. Anytime. Here, have a cigar. I've seen the Americans since, and I like them more and more. But when they left me that first evening, I stood outside my cabin door, staring at it. I think I was afraid of finding a dormitory packed with people. I was remembering my last trip abroad. It was early in 1940, and a liner converted to a troop ship sailing to Cape Town. I was on my way to Rhodesia for my flying training. Together with a lot of ground crew airmen, we were herded into a small gymnasium, but so great was the overcrowding, with all of us interlocked on the floor in the tropical heat, that no one could sleep. The airmen were in high spirits. Their songs were shouted into my ears. I hadn't been long in the Air Force. I was new to the sexual barbarity of military songs. In my inexperience, I found the three weeks' voyage a taste of hell. 
Opening the door, I found my cabin of this aircraft carrier. It was a small, quiet room for two people. On the opposite side of the cabin, smoothing the creases from the tropical uniform that he'd just unpacked, stood the dreaded Hugh. He's the other flight commander. He has a ginger moustache, rather sparse in its texture, filling his upper lip, straight sandy hair brushed back over his head, while his face and thick-set neck are salmon pink in colour. Odd for a Rhodesian. We call him the dreaded Hugh because he prefixes the word dreaded to all our names. I am the dreaded Dennis, and his close friend is the dreaded Ken. Although he had made himself thoroughly at home, he had made no claim on either of the two bunks that fitted into an alcove on the right-hand wall. I guessed he would be playing cards or dice with Ken for most of the voyage, and I didn't want his great feet in my face in the early hours of the morning, so I took the top bunk. Soon after this, Hugh seized a pack of cards and was gone. I had a good look around me. I realised at once that with such a comfortable home I would spend a lot of my time here, and that's just what I've done. It's as good as having a cabin to myself where I only see Hugh in the morning. I watch him from my bunk. He staggers in, in the sleepy condition, up and down the tilting floor, shaves, dresses, then disappears for another 24 hours. It's pleasantly warm in here. In fact, I can control the cabin to any heat by resetting the thermostat. I can also make it deliciously fresh by lifting a small eyelid vent and letting cool air rush in. There are two deep, friendly armchairs on the carpeted floor and two metal writing desks, each with its own shaded reading lamp. Across the end wall, a celadon green curtain is drawn, but behind it, the side of the ship leans outwards, no doubt to support the flight deck above. There's a porthole there, but at the moment, there's a steel blackout panel fitted across it, out of sight, of course, behind the curtain. I've written long letters to all my family and many of my friends. I've read a little, while at times, as now, for instance, I look about me. I find such a luxurious cabin a strangely incongruous thing in war. A U-boat may have its sights upon us, and a torpedo may be approaching, now, at this very moment. Apprehensively, I wait for the bang. There will be a rush of water. I would grab the life jacket that hangs on the back of the closed door and race for life to the rendezvous point on the flight deck above. But suppose the door was buckled in the explosion, jammed tight. I would be trapped. But there is no bang. There's a long creak every few minutes. There's the beat of engines, and there's a rhythm of movement in the way our carrier rides the waves. All around us, thousands of yards out across the dark water, the destroyers and the battleship must be forging ahead in their allotted stations. Thousands of men must be alert. Lookout men must be straining their eyes watching the water, while deep inside the ships, men on duty behind complicated ASDIC instruments must be listening and watching for the blip that would betray a submarine's imminent attack. We are taking reinforcement aircraft to the besieged island of Malta, and it is vital that we get through. This is the blackest moment of the war so far. We have had strategic withdrawal after withdrawal, then a new wave of reverses started last December when the Japanese hit the Americans in the back. With the might of America in with us, it looked as if the war would be quickly over. But no, Germany, Italy and Japan appear to have consorted together. Japan, cutting the world in half longitudinally, has swept southwards across the Pacific Islands and will undoubtedly invade Australia next. Simultaneously, she has struck westwards towards India. In her invasion of Malaya, our great battleships, the Prince of Wales and Repulse, were quickly sunk. Singapore fell next, and now two attacks are converging on India itself. One Japanese army is sweeping through Burma in the north, while in the south we have just learned that a Japanese fleet with troop ships is attacking Ceylon. At this same moment, the Germans and Italians are making an all-out offensive southeastwards across the Mediterranean towards the Middle East. No doubt they expect to join up with the Japanese forces in India. 
Although the Balkans have been overrun, Crete captured by an airborne invasion, and although Rommel is advancing along the North African coast towards Egypt, the island of Malta still stands behind enemy lines, a constant menace to Rommel's supply routes. Malta is vital, and the enemy realise that they must not only neutralise the island, but capture it. Malta is cut off from effective Allied succour by almost a thousand miles of sea from Gibraltar on one hand, and by another thousand miles of water from Cairo on the other. She is brooded upon by the underside of Italy and Sicily, a bare 60 miles away. The Germans have assembled a bombing fleet of 500 planes on the Sicilian airfields. For months, they've been hammering and hammering at the tiny island. The island's RAF bomber force has been wiped out. The dwindling number of fighter planes are battling against odds of 40 or 50 to 1. Will we be in time before the German invasion? Will the 50 Spitfires we are taking be enough? A few minutes ago, I was in the hangar deck looking at our cargo of Spitfires. The hangar is a vast, girded cavern stretching away into the distance like the inside of a whale. In it, our fighters are lashed into position, parasites to Leviathan. It is impossible to cross the deck without ducking under the wings and tails, all tucked into one another. The Spitfire's wheels are steadied by wooden blocks, their wingtips lashed to the deck by ropes and cables, but more Spitfires are suspended from the roof girders, slung there by canvas loops. They sway gently as our carrier rolls. Staring at these planes, I could not help wondering how many of them, and indeed how many of our pilots, will be left in a week's time. In order to get into the Mediterranean without being seen by enemy agents on the shores of Spain or North Africa, our fleet is going to pass through the Straits of Gibraltar in the dead of night. Once inside, the Navy, who have precious few heavy ships left, dare not take us very far. We will have to take off and fly about 700 miles to our destination. I hope we are taken far enough. Of the last formation that left a carrier in this way, only four reached the island. Nine others ran out of petrol. The machines were lost and the pilots drowned. Even the takeoff will be an ordeal. In order to avoid a similar disaster, we will be carrying an extra 90 gallons of fuel in larger long-range tanks attached under the belly of each plane. But a new problem arises. Weight. We've each been limited to 10 pounds of personal luggage in order to keep our machines as light as possible. But the planes themselves, with an extra powerful armament of four cannons and four machine guns, are unusually heavy. Is the deck going to be long enough for us to take off and climb into the air? It looked awfully short when we came aboard, and none of us have ever taken off from an aircraft carrier before. Thus, we face the octopus future that draws us steadily towards it. As a fighter pilot, I know I have little chance of coming out of such a battle alive, so it is with sorrow that I look back on what I have done with my life so far, and on what I hoped I might achieve. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon. (music) 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.